You're listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talensky and Wes Boss. Welcome to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats. Today, we're going to be going over what is new in web development. There's been, I don't know, a handful of, of things that have been surfacing lately, things that are added to JavaScript or to CSS or just to the web platform in general. And, uh, it's good to keep up to date with with what's coming and, and what's new. Today, we're sponsored by two awesome companies, Sentry, which is going to do all of your error and exception tracking, and Clubhouse, which is uh, project management software that won't make you cry. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's the tagline that they use, but uh, it seems pretty sweet. We'll talk about them partway through the episode. How are you doing today, Scott? Hey, I'm doing super good. I just got back from the greatest wedding that I've ever been to, and uh, I'm feeling really good. The, the wedding was amazing it was in pasadena the bride and groom like walked onto the the stage i guess you could call it because it was a stage and performed three songs with guitar she played guitar he played bass and sometimes acoustic and then they had the guitarist from wolfpack or, or theo from wolfpack he's not necessarily the guitarist he was playing guitar uh with them as well and uh it was incredible they did three songs they exchanged rings, and that is the wedding. I think every single person there was just like, wow, that was really cool. That was like a, I mean, because <laughs> they're all incredible musicians, obviously, and uh, that's sort of how they met, essentially. And it was just like, it was such a sweet, sweet thing to be a part of. There was a lot of really cool people there. The, a couple of the guys from Wolfpack in general were there. So uh, it, w- it was just a, it was a blast. Really intimate, really small, 60-some people. Probably the best wedding uh, experience I've had. So, yeah, no, I'm great. I'm feeling recharged after that. How about you? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm about to head off to uh, New York tomorrow morning to go to Jamstack New York. I'm doing a talk on um, just like JavaScript in general, just things that you can do to get better at JavaScript, as well as I'm doing a, a Gatsby workshop, which is the first time I'm, I'm giving it. So I'm pretty excited about that. These conferences are so much fun, uh, but they're so time consuming to to prep for and to travel and to to make a workshop. So this is the I think the last conference I will be at before I take some time off when uh, we have our new baby. So I'm excited to to have this all finished up. Yeah. You know what? I haven't done a workshop like that. Consider, I mean, I've done so many online, but like I haven't done uh, stand in front and do a workshop like that. But I can only imagine what the preparation for that is. It seems like you have to prepare so much stuff to make sure you you don't have any lulls or downtime and that everybody's feeling like they they came out of it learning something because I've been to bad workshops and bad workshops really make you not feel so good about sitting there the whole time you're just like Ooh. yeah they're they're really expensive and you got to sit there all day and like you want to learn something and you want to you want to be able to to put it together so it's it's tough to, to put together a workshop where you don't just want to be like type what I type like you want to give people chances to try it on their own and and whatnot. But then there's this also this like other section of, of workshop is like if somebody gets tripped up on a on something, then then they sort of fall behind. So you have to make sure that you have like like enough like stops where you can like quickly help them or or talk to a neighbor. So I've luckily done like, I don't know, dozens and dozens of workshops in the past. I think I've got a pretty good uh, formula for it. I, I don't do like slide decks. I just do markdown notes. Nice that we sort of roughly follow. And and the, the benefit of that is that I'm able to just sort of talk off of those notes. And then the code samples are in the notes. So if you do goof up doing it live, you can always just quick copy paste, 
from the code samples and, and sort of get back to it, to where you're at. Yeah. It's funny, the, the worst workshop I've ever been, I don't even want to, I don't want to give too much away about this just in case, but the workshop was branded as learning X technology. It says, we're going to learn this X technology. And so I was like, oh, cool. This is something I don't know. And even if it gives me the very big, like the very basics of this thing, I'm going to be excited to know what the very basics are. So I get into the workshop and it's a, it's not super long. It was like a couple hours long. But seriously, the way that we learned that technology was not by learning that technology, but was hitting an API that just returned everything for you. So the API oh, was doing yeah. all of the stuff that you would, they branded as teaching you. It's like, we're going to teach you this. No, actually, you're just going to hit an API endpoint and it's going to bring you back the data. And you're not going to learn any of the stuff that we told you about. And I was just thinking like, oh, my God, oh. I am so annoyed that, I, and I, that half the class was spent. Literally half the class was spent trying to get everyone's API credentials working. Like everyone is just like, mine's not working. The, the service isn't working. The service was half broke. It was just disaster. <laughs> was that person who gave the workshop working for one of the companies that sells this API? Uh, I think you might be right. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And I don't think I, I know that you are right. Yes. Okay. That's that's a bit frustrating sometimes because I guess like you do sometimes want to go to, to specific workshops for these companies because you want to learn their tech. But sometimes it could just be one long sales pitch that you paid for for that specific (laughs) tech, which is a bit of a a bummer. I think that's why I like I like to do uh, workshops because I just do them on on things that like I don't work for Facebook or or anything like that. I just like do them on tech that I'm interested in and other people have been asking to learn. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So let's get into some of these new things in web here. Uh, the first one we have is uh, promise static methods that are, are coming. These new promise methods, uh, which uh, we have as all and race, all settled, any. Uh, I have not looked at this uh, proposal yet, but I would assume it's just more control and giving you the kind of things that we had in, in other promise libraries. Right. It, it just allows you to control race conditions and things of that nature. Yeah. So. Uh, we have already, we've got promise.all, which will finish when either, when all of them are successfully finished. And and sort of a downside to that one right now is that if one of them fails, it'll short circuit is the word that people use. Meaning that like, if you've got five promises and one of them rejects, then it will immediately go to the the catch condition at the end or, or whoever you've chosen to handle that error. And then we have promise.race, which will resolve as soon as the first one finishes. And, and those are pretty heavily used. I use promise.all quite a bit myself, but there's there's two proposals out there right now. We've got promise.all settled, and this is a this is in stage four, so it's it's likely going to come. And uh, the way that it works is that you you pass it an array of, of promises, much like promise.all and, and promise.race. This will fire uh, when all of them are finished, meaning that uh, you don't care if they resolve or reject. If you have four promises, three of them resolve, one of them rejects. If you want to run some code after all of them are finished, regardless of outcome, all settled is, is what we need in that specific use case. Because uh, like I said, promise.all will immediately short circuit. It'll go to the the end when one of them fails. And in this case, we can wait for, for whatever outcome. And then we have as well on that in, in stage one currently. So stage one is uh, it might not come to the language, but um, the way I see it, it's it's fairly likely. This proposal was written by Matthias Binans, who works at Google, who's behind a lot of the JavaScript ES6 stuff. 
So a lot of the stuff that he does actually does get pushed into language. So the difference between promise.any and promise.race is that promise.any will wait for at least one of them to finish. Uh, and then it, it will fire, whereas promise.race will fire if one finishes or one rejects. It doesn't matter. So uh, if you've got like six requests and you don't, you know, like, oh, maybe maybe some of these will will resolve. Maybe some of them will reject. But I just want to know when the first one is resolved mm. or mm. I want to know when all of them reject. You kind of get into the weeds as to, to the specific use cases that you want. And I'm betting that you probably won't reach for these all the time, but they, they I definitely have found myself in uh, situations where uh, I do, especially when like uh, the example that I, I, I give for this is that you've got a promise API uh, and you're hitting like you're trying to guess what endpoints might be. Maybe you want to see if there's a user with the name of Scott mm. and you want to see if there's a username with the name of Wes and you don't know. So what you could do is you could ping both of those API endpoints um, and they'll both reject if they're not there. And you can use these different new promise methods to to wait and check if both resolve or both reject or one resolves and one rejects, et cetera. Interesting. You know what? I As much as I, I love that all of these things exist, this, ever since I've moved to GraphQL, I like have not been thinking that much about race conditions or, or some of these yeah. more interesting solutions because I just hit my API once and typically I'm just doing it through that, you know, an Apollo query or something. But even if I'm hitting it yeah. through a query and returning a promise and, and waiting that it's like not a complex promise situation. So it's funny because I, I just, I never find myself using these, but I, I kind of want to, there are all these things that, that look a lot of fun. I guess you could <laughs> say they're fun, but like they, they look kind of fun to me and it's like, man, be really great if I had a situation where this was applicable. Yeah, I think if if you were to either a be be hitting multiple API endpoints from the browser or be like fulfilling your own GraphQL requests, because like if you're writing the code behind the resolver of your your GraphQL API, yeah. then it's likely that you're going to make, need to make at least two, maybe two or three different database calls, maybe even different APIs at the end of the day, and then it's all sort of swept out under the GraphQL API. Yeah, and it's funny because. Apollo does all that stuff for you, right? It's like, oh, you just specify a custom yeah. resolver and then the resolver does it for you. It's like, you don't even have to wait for the results to be back <laughs> because the the platform does it. So this is Beautiful. really cool. Anything that makes us, you know, working with async uh, easier is, is good for me. Uh, next up, we have lazy loading images. Now this one, Adias Money just dropped like yesterday or something, April This weekend. 6th, this is weekend. the most tweeted thing ever. Oh and he my tweeted God. it on a weekend. Yeah, it <laughs> is. It's something, this is, a, I think this is a perfect example of the browser taking over something that it should be taking over. Because how many times, I mean, how many projects have you used that have implemented lazy loading? I feel like almost everything I do that's image heavy or anything implements lazy loading in it. And so this is going to be native lazy loading is coming into Chrome. Uh, you simply just need to pass in a data property named loading or attribute, I should say. You need to pass in an attribute that just says loading and have it equal to lazy. Uh, and therefore, you're going to have images that not load until they're in, in the middle of the scroll view. And what's cool about this is that in this blog post, he even talks about a great little fallback, right? If the loading exists in HTML image element dot prototype, 
then the browser supports loading. Otherwise, you can use a polyfill or a library instead. So he even has code inside of his blog post to show you how to have a fallback for this. So you don't need to bring in anything other than this polyfill fallback library, and you can get using on this right away. Uh, so this is sick. This is very sick in my opinion. I, I'm so excited to have lazy loading into the browser. Again, this falls into the category of stuff that is going to make your applications be faster. And anything that makes your application be faster without you having to do very much is a huge one mm -hmm. in my book. I mean, do the the options here are the, uh, I don't know if you want to get into some of the loading attribute options that we have coming with this lazy loading, but I'm just so excited for this. Yeah, it seems pretty neat. There's there's lazy, uh, which is what we talk about. There's eager, which is loading it right away. And, and then there's auto, which is letting the browser decide it for you. The blog post here doesn't go into like how it decides when to load the image. But I think that that's because that's a browser uh, implementation. The, you should tell the browser the, the same with like the the preload attribute on, on a video tag. You can tell it's a preload, but sometimes the browser for the user experience and the batteries and, and bandwidth sake, uh, it will it will sort of override that and, and use its own attribute or, or decide when it should load it. In. It's just, it, the only this thing just says it will only load them when the user scrolls near them. So I don't know whether that means yeah. it's halfway on the page, totally on the page, like one scroll view away. I'm sure that the, the browser will figure out what makes for the best, because I also don't like it when you have to like scroll and wait a second for the image to download. I much prefer you just to load it when it's like maybe like one scroll yeah, view away yeah, same and then here. go ahead and or like load the page and then and then start to load them in the background. That's how a lot of uh, code split bundles work as well. Yeah. And we should also mention that this is going to be working for iframes as well. Again, these things are just this is just, oh, like on an iframe tag. Yeah. On an iframe tag. That's such a good it, idea. The, the same property. You bet. Oh, I bet like something like CodePen will love that because oh yeah, uh, CodePen is just an iframe of people's pens and they have to load like seven or eight websites for every view. They probably already have their own lazy loading scheme for that, but yeah, uh, it'd be cool to go native. And I, this is like a perfect example of like a progressive enhancement as well, where like you can just pop this on your existing image elements, even if you don't do the like the polyfill workaround and, and your, your sources will just still work in older browsers. And then people who have newer browsers will be able to have a, a bit of a better experience or save bandwidth, a faster load, things like that. Yeah, I'm pumped for this. I'm going to be using this obviously everywhere. Even and I was thinking like Twitter embeds, Twitter embeds take a long time to load. And I, mm -hmm. I do lazy load them right now with the lazy load react. But hey, it could be easier. And if it's built in the library, I don't even have to throw in that lazy load code. It cleans up my X or uh, XML. Yeah, it cleans up my XML really well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next up, we have CSS Houdini, which is pretty exciting. We've we've talked about it, and we actually have a, a show coming up on it. We just have to spend some a little bit more time building a couple things ourselves in it before we can do a whole show on it. But CSS Houdini is this idea where you can write your own little worklets. You have access to the CSS Paint API inside of it, meaning that uh, you can write your own CSS, like border jagged or uh, filter grungy. That's like, I would kill to have a filter grungy. And, yeah. uh, and then you, yeah, that's right up what happens alley. is that you can have access to the paint API and then you have access to, I think it's pretty much just the canvas API that you like the 2D canvas API and you can paint and you can, you can do borders and you can, it's a lot of math of, of having to, to draw on it. But 
you can implement your own CSS uh, from there on out, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, and there's some insane possibilities with CSS Houdini. If this like ends up being performant and as awesome as CSS is already, you best believe this is going to be huge. So you could think of it, well, if you want to see some of these examples, this css-houdini.rocks is the coolest website uh, because there is so many little experimental showcases where you can really get a good idea of just how mind-blowing this CSS Houdini actually is because you can do so many things that you couldn't do before. There's even a really uh, good example of using, you know, uh, personalized checks checkboxes. So like designed oh, checkboxes. I'm just looking at this one right now. Yeah, there's slanted gradients. There's corner gradients. There's uh, you background properties, and you can do so much stuff here. Tool tips. Oh, you can make a tool tip finally in CSS, <laughs> and that's really sweet. Custom borders, rough boxes. There's like a really cool like highlighter example where it makes it look like it was highlighted with a highlighter. This one looks like it's sketched. I mean, there is just some cool stuff. And man, if you can animate this stuff and 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 have it all, it's just my mind is completely blown with how awesome CSS Houdini is. I actually, this isn't, isn't out by any means yet, but I am... I, I am like already salivating at the opportunity to do a, a tutorial course on CSS Houdini because I just want to dive into this head first. So I'm just looking at this uh, checkbox one right here. And what it was is it says background and, and the property was paint, which is a, a new method, I guess, or like a kind of like when we do like background parentheses. So it's called paint. And then you pass it the name of the paint API that you want. And this this case is called checkbox. And then you have this register worklet JavaScript, which I'm looking at it right now. It's probably 20 lines of JavaScript and it just says register paint, which I guess is the the global function for registering a new Houdini. I don't even know what it's called, like a property. And it's register paint checkbox. And then you pass it a class, which inside of that you can you can uh, create your own new methods and whatnot. And it's just it's just CSS or sorry. It's just JavaScript canvas uh, code from there on out, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And it looks like it's a lot of math. I mean, this looks like a lot of math. So uh, maybe if you're interested in being CSS Houdini master, it's going to be time for you to to bust out some of those math workshops and tutorials and, and <laughs> canvas tutorials, things like that to get used to uh, painting in context and working in a, like a matrix of of pixels and things like that, because there's so much possibility here. But I'm, I have the feeling yeah. that uh, you're going to have to be really good at math. And you're going to have to be good at like canvas skills in general to make this happen. Yeah. The, the frustrating thing about canvas is that there's no elements. You can't just select a line yeah. and like move it over. Right. You have to like paint it and repaint it. And canvas is frustrating to me in, in that regard. But that's obviously how it works. Yeah. I think like if you were uh, looking like I know a lot of people are like, how can I like get better at, at JavaScript or, or whatever? I, I think like if you were to hitch your wagon to this horse, I think it'd be very beneficial <laughs> to your career. Conference talks, YouTube videos, lots of examples. Like if you can become the CSS Houdini person with tons and tons of examples, I think that this would be a very beneficial thing because there's not a lot out there right now. And I think that this is going to blow up like it's going to be like CSS grid was where all of a sudden people go, whoa, it's in all the browsers. <laughs> Wait, we can use we it can now. Use it now. <laughs> now. And then there's just this huge like that's what I did with my CSS grid course is I released it like just a couple months before it just blew up and now everybody's using it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. A tip. 
Yeah, hot tip. And I mean, and speaking of horses, the workhorse of my bug tracking system is Sentry. <laughs> <laughs> and Sentry, by all means, does the workload of a horse here for me because I just drop in some simple lines of code and some configuration to get it going. And Sentry catalogs and categorizes all of my bugs. And the cool thing is I can attach them to releases. So let's say I'm pushing out a new version of Level Up Tutorials and I want to say, hey, this version of tutorials should have all this stuff fixed. Well, uh, I've attached a release to Sentry, and now Sentry is has that additional context to know, okay, this bug has happened this many times in this release and this many times uh, prior to this release. So therefore, looks like you fixed it. Um, so Sentry provides all sorts of amazing tools like that, and you're going to want to see it to believe it because their website is not only beautiful, but their interface is, is amazing to work in. I never have to struggle to find where to go. Everything just sort of falls at my fingertips. I don't think I've ever contacted Sentry support, which for me is pretty big. So head on over to Sentry.io. Use the coupon code TASTYTREAT, all one word, all lowercase, to give Sentry a try. They uh, have you know, been a longtime supporter of Syntax, and I highly recommend them as a service. So thank you so much to our Sentry for sponsoring this episode. Next up is a quick update to CSS Subgrid. Uh, in December, and it released in January, we recorded a podcast on CSS Subgrid, which, uh, real quick, it will allow you to extend the rows and columns of a grid to a child element. Um, and that's really cool because sometimes you want to uh, you have like a grid with three cards and then inside of each of those cards, you want to align all of the like headings or images or, or footers. You want to align them all to be the same. And it's not really doable right now in CSS. You can do some some hacks with Flexbox where you align the last thing at the end. But uh, subgrid will allow you to align like a grandchild with its parents rows and columns. After that uh, episode, we got a tweet from Jen Simmons, which uh, I assume she heard the episode was subgrid is not a year out because we said it's probably a year out. And uh, she said, we are working on it in Firefox right now. If you want it sooner than 2020, how badly and for what uses? So that's really exciting because it seems to be that we will probably get it sooner than a year out. Uh, there is a flag in Firefox developer and nightly right now called layout.css dot grid template subgrid value dot enabled turning that to true still doesn't enable it but it does look like we will probably at least be able to start to play with it in firefox sometime soon um, there's a bugzilla link to it uh, hasn't been updated in three months and that's really all i can find about uh, the status of it but I, I do know that we probably should start seeing it, it soon yeah i'm i'm hopeful too i i can't wait to see this and i know uh, if you're interested in learning more about subgrid, like why you would use it specifically, or maybe some of the in-depth stuff, we did an entire episode on subgrid and I thought it was a really great episode. Episode 109. Yeah, episode 109, CSS grid level two, AKA subgrid. So if you want to learn more about it, check out episode 109. Uh, it'll give you a lot more background information on what's going on here. But just like with grid, you know, I, I might not be using CSS subgrid all the time, but the fact that it exists, I think is going to really change how we think about laying things out. Because right mm -hmm. now, I think one of the things that CSS grid did best is it allowed us to remove some of the extraneous divs and some of the extraneous elements we were throwing in our code just for CSS reasons specifically. And it would, yeah. it's gonna make our, our code a lot cleaner. So if subgrid ends up having that kind of impact, which I have a feeling it will, and there's definitely a specific set of use cases that uh, subgrid is perfect for, I think subgrid is just going to further make things easier on us. And 
so many times we're constrained to do certain CSS techniques by the HTML we're either given by the, the team that's in charge of it, a CMS, or maybe we just want to write ultra clean CSS and not have to have a bunch of extra stuff in there. So uh, I'm all for additions and improvements to CSS in that sort of way. We have a couple of other things about CSS later on in the show that, again, are just going to make our lives quite a bit easier. I'll tell you one little example of when I want this is uh, this sniper application I built that scrapes Kijiji and Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. There's a button that says nah on it where you can use it takes in all of the items. And, and I just want to like I want to delete a bunch of them because I don't like them. Right. Sure. And the button I just want it like sometimes there's like 300 items in there and I just want to go bum, 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 like quickly go through them. But the problem is that sometimes the title of the item is two lines tall. And what that does is it shifts everything in that card a little bit down. And that means that the button the button moves down as well. And so as you're tapping it, the buttons move up and down depending on how many lines of text are there. And there's not really a good solution for lining up the buttons to be all on the same row unless you were to, it, it was the last item in the card and you were to stick it at the bottom of the, the card. Word. All right, so next up we have a fun one, which is native modules in the browser. Again, I think this is one of... Obviously, this has been a long time coming, but so many of these things that we're talking about here, it's, it's stuff that we use, right? It's stuff that we want to use in, in JavaScript and CSS and whatever in our code. And now the browser is going to just be adding it so that we don't have to do it in code ourselves, or maybe we don't have to worry about compiling as much or any of that stuff. So JS modules, also known as ES modules or ECMAScript modules. I, I love that, uh, that clarification there in the... Uh, <laughs> blog post. Uh, but it, it's basically just a, it's a collection of new features in JavaScript that allow you to use modules like uh, CommonJS or Node, whatever have we used before using the import syntax. So this is pretty cool. Yeah. So the way that this works is that you just have a script tag. You say type equals module. Um, you can only use ESM modules. I know you said CommonJS. Oh, I, mean, but- I meant like using like like oh yeah yeah like you're just used to using yes um it's supported in almost every browser uh right now obviously no ie 11 and the other only other one that is significant is the uc browser for android is now supported in which has almost uh, three and a half percent global usage but that's going to be kind of cool where you can just start using a script type equals module and uh, if you have http2 enabled on your server it will ideally download all those assets uh, at the same time and you can import all of your files uh, and there will be no compile step, which is kind of cool. We're also getting dynamic import pretty soon. This is less well supported, but like everything, if you're compiling using Webpack or, or Parcel or something like that, this comes along for free already. That, that will help you do code splitting. Yeah, and I see here in some of these notes here that there's often use of this .mjs to distinguish a JavaScript module. Have you have you looked into this MJS stuff? Yeah. So yeah, th- we did a show like maybe six months ago that sort of gave the update um, and it looked like the getting modules in node. So not not modules in the browser, but uh, being able to use ES6 ESM modules in node was that we're going to have to start using dot MJS syntax. And everybody was like, no, yeah, yeah right. Don't. That sucks. Uh, and uh, thankfully, uh, they listened. Um, so there was a bit of an update about a week ago on this. And uh, what is now going to happen is that we get to keep our .js syntax. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. 
you can use the MJS syntax if you want, but they're sort of reworking how our module is loaded in Node. It's a kind of a big thing. And uh, the big sort of the short and skinny of it is that your package JSON is going to have a type property in it, and you can set that either to common JS, which is the, the way that it is now with the require, or you can set it to type module, and then, and then that will flip it over to ESM, and, and that will allow you to, and by doing that, it then tells your project, how should I handle importing of my, my different files? There also is going to be a new .cjs extension, so that if you have some older code that is written in common JS, but you want to go sort of full throttle on ES6 modules, you can still import that older module.exports code. Uh, you can still import into your ES6. So there's a huge, huge link to this on uh, GitHub explaining all of the different stages, how they're going to roll it out. There's an incredible amount of uh, of work that has gone into this. Like, especially um, I specifically follow Miles Borens on Twitter. He's taken a lot of hack over this, I can tell just because people are not wanting the MJS syntax. And it's a lot more complicated than than people think because of how modules work in Node right now. And modules in, in, in Node right now are dynamic, meaning that you can import a module inside of a, a function, whereas ESM modules are static. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and those working together and still working in the same way is harder than you think of implementing it. So I'm pretty happy with this this outcome. Uh, I'm excited to finally get it in, in Node land. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I think, again, there's a common theme, and I've said it before. All of these things are going to take things that we do already, and uh, it's going to make things super easy. So another thing that's going to be, in my opinion, this is going to be sort of a game changer. So this one is absolutely fascinating. It's sort of a future that we all imagined a long time ago when people first started building web apps. Like first we started talking about web apps and thinking like, okay, they're they're like applications and, you know, maybe we'll the future will just be web or maybe the future is going to be native or what? It, what is the future of, of applications in general on our devices? And here comes along progressive web apps and progressive web apps have uh, allowed us to install applications onto our home screen. I know Android makes it a really easy experience. It throws the icon on your desktop. I think iOS is the same. Can, can you comment on that? Yes. It's as of the latest iOS, we finally have the ability to do it. I haven't tried it myself just yet. Uh, maybe if you have some good examples of, of progressive web apps to install to the home screen, let us know at Syntax FM. Yeah, I had I had level up tutorials as a progressive web app for a little bit uh, just to try it out. So I have the level up tutorials app installed on my phone, even though I'm no longer uh, necessarily a progressive web app right now. Uh, but that said, <laughs> I, I plan on, on re-rolling out some of that stuff too. But this is so cool because the actual meat of this thing is in sure we're getting progressive web apps installed, but now we're going to be able to submit progressive web apps to the Google Play Store. Ooh. And unfortunately, uh, from what I've been reading, it's not that easy yet. It's not as simple as paste in the URL, let Google take care of the rest. Apparently, it's a Java based API that communicates through services with Chrome. Um, it's already been shipped. So uh, if you want to dive into this, you can get an app on the Play Store that's a progressive web app, and they're called TWA. So sort of like a progressive web app, it's called a trusted web activity. Uh, this means it's essentially a Chrome browser running on the phone that's in its own little environment where nothing outside of that environment necessarily exists. So you're not... Um, it, you know, it's a, a trusted application on your phone. So these things are really interesting. I, I dug into this a little bit. So 
the basics here are really that your trusted web app, I want to say, I almost said primary <laughs> for progressive. I don't even know, messing up the words here, uh, but trusted web activity needs to basically follow the Google Play Store policies, especially for payments, in-app purchases, digital goods. You can use your progressive web app in as a TWA, as long as it has HTTPS, a service worker with a fetch event handler, a web map, a web app manifest file, a 512 pixel icon, a background color property, and some other basic properties. And uh, you also need to have a performance score of at least 80 out of 100 on Lighthouse. So again, a big reason to use something that's going to get you that big old performance bundle. I recommend checking out your site with Lighthouse all the time. It helps you find some of these slowdowns. And believe it or not, there's actually several TWAs in the Google Play Store already from big companies. This isn't just something Ooh, really? that uh, normal people are using. Twitter Lite is a TWA. Google Maps Go, which is essentially a light version of Google Maps, is a TWA. And Instagram Lite is also a TWA. So we have from Twitter, Instagram, and Google, all with the TWA. I think this is really super cool. I'm really looking forward to it because you know, do you want to build your app a couple of times or do you want to build it once? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's, that's, uh, my thoughts on the subject. That's really exciting. I, I, so over the last week as a little experiment, I deleted the Twitter and Instagram apps from my phone and tried to just use the website. And by far the fresh, most frustrating part about it on iOS is the fact that as you scroll on a, on an app, the URL bar goes up and down yes. and, uh, the amount of height you have on the screen in the viewport has changed um, and it just it, it results in such a janky experience. And it's not the fault of the people building them because the apps are actually really slick. And I'm assuming when you install these progressive web apps on your home screen is you get rid of the browser Chrome and you just get the full screen. You and do. They're going to act a lot more. I should try and yeah. install these things. Uh, le my. my level up tutorials app is full screen. Absolutely no, uh, no bar here. You can see it. I'll hold it up to the camera right now. I'm sorry for you use it folks at home. Yeah, it looks like a looks like a regular old app. It's pretty sweet. I'm going to install it right now while we uh, do the rest of the episode. And I'll uh, I'll let you know what it's like for for Twitter. Yeah. So as you build your progressive web app, where are you going to log the the tickets and, and track the progress of developing your Look at you. Look at you. progressive web app. Yeah, I'm I'm Scott in training here trying to transition to our sponsors here. So uh, one of our sponsors today is Clubhouse, uh, which is available at clubhouse.io forward slash syntax. And they seem to be the project management company that is going to make developers want to actually use project management software. So they sort of build themselves as project management software that uh, developers for for building software that developers and project managers and everyone will will love to use. You've probably used something like Jira before, um, and it's very overwhelming with all of the stuff that's going on there. Um, it's really hard for a project manager just to take a look at the dashboard and see where are we at for our Q4 2019? Um, what is currently blocked right now? What are things that are people working on right now? Uh, what does our burn down chart look like? There's all this like kind of amazing information that you can gather from a, a good uh, project management. So um, Clubhouse is designed beautifully. The API is really, really slick. We've talked about this before. Even if you look at like Sentry and things like Clubhouse, the design of these things means a lot because it's really easy to actually use it. 
So if you want a fast, lightweight, powerful approach to planning your product, to working with your product, to working with everybody that's on your team, from the actual software developers to the project management, you want to check out Clubhouse at clubhouse.io forward slash syntax. And what this is going to do is you normally get a 14 day free trial. And with this URL, you're going to get an extra two months for free. So that's plenty of time to, to test it out and see how awesome this is and to try it out for your team. So thanks so much to Clubhouse for sponsoring. Check it out at clubhouse.io forward slash syntax. Thank you. Cool. So we're going to get into a couple of CSS properties here that we're going to be, in my opinion, game changers for CSS. Everything's a game changer. This episode's full of game changers. The game's <laughs> been changed several times. This next one is going to be scroll snap. Now scroll snap is already in lots of browsers. And this one is really super cool. If you've ever done any sort of uh, gesture based anything, you'll know that you had to have a lot of JavaScript to get this kind of functionality working in the past. Maybe you're building a slideshow or something and you wanted to snap and, and really lock on to a specific div. This is also really useful for a lot of these full screen websites. You know, you have a full screen website that you maybe only want each section to take up the full screen at a time. So you have one section and then when you start to scroll, once you pass that threshold, the browser will then latch on to the next one. And if you were to take your finger off the trackpad and stop scrolling, it would snap down to the next one. This is really super cool. I think scroll snapping is one of these features, again, that is something we had to do in JavaScript. And now we no longer have to bring in JavaScript to do it. We no longer have to have that extra code to make it happen. It's going to be in CSS and it already is in quite a bit of browsers. I'm going to pull up can I use here. Scroll snap. Yeah. So it's fully supported in Chrome as a version 69. And uh, it is fully supported in Safari, iOS Safari, Android, Chrome for Android. And some of these other ones, Firefox has partial support. Edge has partial support. IE has partial support, believe it or not. Uh, what that partial support is, you're going to want to check out Can I Use. But scroll snap is a, is a good one. Opera, what are you doing? Opera still in red. Come on, man. Get it going. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, there's also this like scroll behavior uh, property that you can now use on most browsers where uh, if you jump to a specific part of the browser, um, it will just smooth scroll it. Um, that's really cool because you, then you don't need a smooth scroll library. Um, when CSS Tricks released their new website uh, a couple months ago, they had it. So when you searched on the page and when you sort of went through all of the, you kept hitting enter on the search bar and going through all the different uh, results that it found, it would scroll you inside of the actual page. They since have took it off because I think that it was too slow feeling for people that wanted to quickly jump through the page. Uh, but I thought that was pretty cool that you can control how the page jumps up and down. Yeah, super cool. Next one is this. This is a personal favorite of mine because uh, this is something that I've run into just about 100 times. I work with a lot of thumbnail images with videos and things that I would like to have and maintain an aspect ratio. Because uh, now yes. that we're in the world where our screens are no longer tied to different pixel sizes and things like that, you often have a div or an element. I think specifically in my use case, the tutorial cards, right? The series cards that on level of tutorials, it looks like a little card here. Now, right now those cards are flexible and I could, could I could design them to be, let's say, uh, always fixed in the same size, but I don't want them always fixed in the same size and maybe just rapidly change on breakpoints. I just want to keep them in the same 
aspect ratio and I want that aspect ratio to grow in scale. So let's say it's like a 16 by nine or something like that. You always keep it in that same aspect ratio, uh, but it will increase in size. It's like, you know, when you are in uh, Photoshop and you hold the shift key and you make yeah. something bigger, that's what it is. So aspect ratio unit in CSS, yes, all, yes, please. Uh, this blog post that we have in the course notes from Smashing Magazine is from March. Uh, so this stuff is, is sort of brand spanking new to be talked about. But again, I couldn't be any more excited for this because this is this is my uh, wheel wheelhouse, wheel well. I don't know, one of those two. Next up is, this is still probably coming uh, and it's CSS nesting, which is pretty cool. So we've, we've done nesting in SAS for years and both along with CSS custom properties, variables, and, and now that we're gonna have CSS nesting, but those are probably by far the two most heavily used parts of a preprocessor. And we will be getting those inside of CSS. It looks like the proposal right now is that you put an ampersand in front of your selector, kind of like we do in SAS. Yeah. In SAS. It's a little bit different than the SAS syntax, which is fine because you can just take three minutes and learn what the syntax is. And then we're going to have it uh, built into to CSS. Yeah. Can we talk about how like the browser developers are learning from the best things of what we do. So they're not just saying, okay, you know, all of these tools that are now established as, you know, serious best practices or ways to do things. We're now taking these things and we're just going to throw it in the browser. We're gonna make it easy on you because everybody is doing it anyways. And if you're not doing it, then you're gonna really understand the joys of nesting. Now, nesting can get out of control. It's one of those things that you'll typically have a little bit of growing pains there when you're you're picking up and you're a new dev, you, you wanna just nest everything. And there's this weird middle space between nesting everything and nesting nothing, where it's an absolute yeah. sweet spot and it makes everything perfect for you. And you, you just have to write so much less CSS. But if you're not writing nesting, CSS in some sort of capacity already. I would get up on this because I cannot imagine going back to a world where I have to write all these nested classes without CSS nesting. It's, yeah, it's madness. I can't imagine doing that right now. You're for sure going to see some people that get salty about adding this to the language because they refer to it as what's called a foot gun, uh, which is a gun that you can shoot yourself in the foot with <laughs> because like you can go bananas nesting things and I certainly when I taught a boot camp, I would we would show nesting and people would just start with the body tag and start <laughs> nesting yeah, yeah, all the way all the way home. Uh, and then you go, oh, oh, I totally forgot. Don't nest everything. Only nest when you actually need it. And that's just another thing I think beginners are going to have to learn as to like, why do you need nesting and what situations would you use this versus just using a, a plain old selector? So it definitely has some some potential for misuse, but. We've all been misusing it in SAS for years already, so not a big deal there, in my opinion. Yeah, it just takes a little bit of little bit of effort to. I don't know. This is one of those things that's once you get burned by it, you're like, oh yeah, don't do that. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's pretty much it. There's there's a lot of new stuff, and if we didn't get to the one thing that you were talking about, don't worry. I feel like there's enough here to do another episode on this at some point in the future because. Our our industry is constantly changing and constantly evolving, and it's important that we evolve and change with it to make sure that we stay up on the stuff that's latest. So if you are interested in any of this stuff, we have a lot of links in the show notes. Check out a lot of cool stuff. I'm very excited about the future of the web. I always talk about that. So uh, yeah, I, I don't have anything else. Do you want to get into sick picks? Yes, absolutely. So uh, my sick pick today is going to be a YouTube channel called The Punk Rock MBA. Whoa. And this is a, a guy, Finn McKenty. And he puts together these awesome 
videos about the history of music in general. Like when I was a kid, I would just listen to this guy, Alan Cross, and he would have the show called the Ongoing History of New Music. He's actually still doing it. But I, I often listen to it and I'm like, I don't know anything about these bands because they're just way before my time. And I, I feel like this new YouTube channel, the Punk Rock MBA, it goes into the bands over the last maybe 15 years or so. And he goes, he has like videos like uh, how Seosin changed the game or... <laughs> What killed new metal? Like, why are there not bands like Korn and Slipknot <laughs> anymore? And how did Blink-182 get so big? And it's just it's just like, mm, just every time I watch one of his videos, it just feels like, oh, because there is so many of us. I met somebody at a, the conference last week and, and he's like, yeah, I, I was in a hardcore band and now I'm a web developer. And I think like the, probably, I don't know, 70 percent of web developers used to be people that would go to shows and, and watch hardcore bands and stuff like that. And this look on that whole industry is just very entertaining and very informative. Interesting. Uh, yeah. I'm fascinated. I, you know, I'm a huge punk fan. I grew up with a lot of like, you know, Operation Ivy sort of stuff and, and I maybe not hardcore, hardcore, but like I've always been yeah. a, a punk fan. And so I'm going to have to check this out. This is pretty sweet. Yeah. He just goes into like, uh, like what killed pop punk, like some 41, yeah, uh, newfound glory, simple plan. What killed Christian core? Cause there's like this like huge part of the, the hardcore scene was just these Christian bands from the tooth and nail record. What killed skate punk? What killed post hardcore? So good. Nice. I love it. If you want to find some good punk music uh, or like pop punk music, this is not like punk punk, but it's a uh, very, very, uh, I don't know. Very catchy. Uh, yep. it's just, uh, I think it's called Masked Intruder. Let me double check on that. They are like straight up fun pop music or a fun pump punk pop music that couldn't be any better. It's it's like it, the funniest thing about this Masked Intruder band is that they're all wearing masks and they have aliases <laughs> and uh, the songs are all about robbing people and like running from the police. Um, so the whole thing is sort of like it's not necessarily a joke. But it's really good. It's just great. They do some some great little love songs. Uh, Mass Intruder, yeah, definitely. I I like a lot of their albums. Their one EP was sick. So it's great. They're, they're I've, fun I've been loving the pop punk lately. I the, just discovered this new band from Toronto called Pup P U P. Yeah, and they've got a song called Free at Last. Uh, I just love it. It's just pop punk is so good. It is. Yeah, I know the Descendants, any of that stuff. Uh, one of my favorite punk albums of all time was Propagandi, uh, one of the pop Propagandi yeah. albums. I, oh, man, I love all that stuff. Yeah, so my sick pick to get out of the uh, the punk talk, I have a, a fun podcast suggestion. Now, this is a different this is a different kind of podcast for me, considering all of my podcasts have been about like cheating, swindling, hacking, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a lot more fun and a lot less dark. Uh, this podcast is called Finding Drago. And if you've never heard of this thing, it is hilarious. Now, it's one of those short series ones. There's only seven episodes, so you can breeze through it. And it's it's not a huge commitment. I breezed through it while I was in San Francisco. And uh, what it is, here's the premise of the story. The premise of the story is that these guys who are podcast hosts stumble upon a Wikipedia entry for the movie Rocky Four, in which somebody on Wikipedia mentions a book that was a sequel to essentially Rocky Four, but it's all about the bad guy in Rocky Four. I believe his name's Ivan Drago. And um, you're thinking like, who the heck would write a book about the bad guy from Rocky Four? 
And so what they do is they start to look because they they declare that this book is a lost masterpiece in Wikipedia. So whenever they they they're like, okay, what is this weird book that someone's talking about on Wikipedia? They start to dive into the, the book, and it's just a huge web of confusion because they stumble upon like Goodreads reviews where they'll be like. I was walking in Costa Rica and a vagabond handed me this book and it changed my life. And it's just so bizarre. The whole thing just unravels to the point where you're just like, okay, is this, this serious? And, uh, it is, it's a good time. If you're, if you're looking for something that's sort of geeky and sort of fun and just like not serious at all, finding Drago was a really good investigative, investigative, uh, podcast. They refer to it as like serial but stupid. Uh, so it's, it's really super good. I like this one quite a bit. Uh, that's my sick pick finding Drago. Check it out. Nice little quick one. Shameless plugs. I have a course on Gridsum that is out. Gridsum is the sort of Vue.js counterpart to Gatsby for building static sites in Vue. This course gives you everything you need to know about getting up and running with Gridsum. You can see about how it differs. It uses GraphQL for the data layer. We go into a lot of GraphQL basics if you're new to that. But one of the coolest things is you can get a ton, ton, ton done with Gridsum in absolutely no time because it leaves a lot of the inner working stuff up to just basic configuration options. You pass it a path, you tell it to do something in settings. You don't have to write a whole bunch of code to make things like that happen. So I found that you can write extremely efficient sites with Gridsum and Vue.js extremely quickly, totally extreme at leveluptutorials.com forward slash pro sign up and get that as well as every other course. Yeah, that's what I got. Awesome. I'll sick pay or shamelessly plug all of my courses, westboss.com forward slash courses. You'll see a list of all the free and paid ones. Sign up for something that interests you and keep on learning. Keep on learning. Love, laugh, live, learn. <laughs> that's that's. Oh my gosh, that needs to be a sticker. <laughs> Live, laugh, love, learn. Love it. <laughs> Get it over it. Put it in the plaque over my front door. Oh man, that's great. Cool. All right, well, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. Peace. Peace. Head on over to syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show. 